Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Nice to see you, Joey. I appreciate uh, you, you taking the time to, to chat with me this morning. And I think as maybe a little bit of background or, or context before we really get into things, it'd be helpful to maybe learn a little bit more about your, your background. So if you, if you don't mind, tell me a little bit more about uh, sort of your background and how it is that you found your way into cybersecurity. Well, I'm a computer scientist, and my dad was a computer scientist, one of the very first. In the 60s, he was doing an electrical engineering PhD at UPenn, and he was doing work that you would probably reference as artificial intelligence now. Um, it's this automata that they're feeding instructions to and so on. So his um, advisor came and said, hey, at UPenn, we're creating this new department. Um, it's like 1965 or something called computer science. And we'd like to make your PhD that. <laughs> My dad famously said, if you have to call yourself a science, you probably aren't one. So, yeah. <laughs> but he went along with it. And we joke, he's in 90, 91 now, but we joke that um, he thinks he may have been the first or second, you know, oh, wow. PhD in computer science. So when I was, I was studying physics as an undergrad, I came out, I decided I was a bit more bound for computing. I wasn't a very good physicist, but I sure did like software. And my dad, uh, in uh, 90, uh, 1983, we were having uh, sushi. <laughs> and he said, you know, let me give you some advice. I said, what is it, dad? He goes, computer security, that's going to be a big area. Said, you, ought to, you ought to go into that. So I focused my graduate work there. I went to Bell Labs and I joined the Unix security group there. Uh, wow. adding security to the Unix operating system while I was doing my PhD. It was a nice time. And it was good because nobody was kind of doing security then, except, you know, maybe NSA, some banks, and a few of the telcos and, and, and research labs. So we could make a lot of mistakes. We didn't know what we were doing. We were creating a discipline. And to be honest with you, Joey, the attackers were we saw more as peers than adversaries, like hackers. Hmm. That was a designation that we used with respect. Like a hacker was a respectful term, someone who had the ability to find vulnerabilities and would take the time to point them out was something to be admired. It's only in the last, I don't know, uh, maybe 10 to 15 years that, you've seen people use um, offense to really go after uh, human beings and, you know, and achieve dominance and things. But in the early days, it was not like that at all. So yeah. that's how I kind of fell into it at Bell Labs and, you know, doing the academic research and also work at uh, AT&T. Got it. Okay. I, I read a book recently. I'm, I, the name's escaping me. Let me find it real quick. It's uh, The Idea Factory about oh, yeah. Bell Labs. Oh, yeah. That was Pen yeah. Is that Penzias wrote that? Yes. Yes, it is. And exactly. And I, I was interested by it just because I had heard of the company, but didn't know a ton about it. And just thought it was is interesting that, you know, when you think of or monopolies, you, you think there's a disconnect between mm. large uh, you know, maybe entrenched businesses and, and as a result, a lack of innovation. But the whole point of this was it actually created a, an amazing forum of innovation that led to mission critical technologies that run our day-to-day lives right now. So I'm curious just to hear maybe your reflection on your time at, at Bell. 
Well, research goes to this these long periods where the pendulum swings back and forth between individual entrepreneur types and large institutions that work research projects. So if you go back to the turn of the century into the 20s and 30s, you know, the names that come to mind are Henry Ford and Thomas Edison and others. These were these wonderful individuals, um, sometimes not so wonderful in their personal life, but, you know, in terms of their um, achievements in science and engineering, quite amazing. And around World War II, that swung. It swung toward the need for large institutional research to step up. And Bell Laboratories was one of the best. And the conditions were right because the deal that the Bell system had made with the U.S. federal government was that they would spend a small portion, I think it was 1% of their, uh, I think it was a profitability, on research. And it was funny, like the cynical view of that is that the executives, the telecom executives in the 40s, 50s, 60s, quite some time ago, wanted nothing to do with research affecting or changing the actual network that was being laid out. So the scientists were encouraged to do metallurgy and biology and chemistry and physics and all kinds of crazy things. And what came out of the transistor came out of that laser came out. And these were things that weren't even immediately applied to telecom. So the conditions were right for institutional research. Around the 70s, 80s, we started to see a swing back toward the individuals, to the Steve Jobs, the um, Bill Gates, the individual entrepreneurs that were driving as institutional research kind of fell apart with, um, you know, companies like AT&T breaking up and no longer being able to support it. Now with AI, I think we're going to see a swing back toward large institutional research. It's very difficult to do AI research without cooperation from large data sources, from powerful computing uh, sources. And I know people say, well, I just rent some space on you know, Amazon. But I, I don't think it works that way. I think that the best research will come now from the large organizations. But Bell Labs was a unique place. It was a place where we were inventing the future. I, I loved every minute of it. Yeah. Yeah. I was just about to ask about that with, uh, with AI and, in, in, you know, large enterprises today where obviously Meta's released a lot, Microsoft either directly or through their support of open AI. There's all the rumors now with Apple and kind of what they're going to do here in the new year. But do you, you feel maybe large enterprises are in a better position to lead the, that charge as opposed to, to smaller businesses, at least in this, There's no this question point. about it. I mean, yeah. you know, access to data, is the magic of getting the AI to work properly. And yeah, you can train on what you, I, mean, I run a little advisory and we train on our data. So yeah, I mean, you can train yeah. on anything, um, but having the, the access, um, the reach, the scope, the scale of say a meta or an Apple um, gives them unprecedented ability to do things. Now in the cyber area, it could be, both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing in the sense that attack surface management can get really good. I just wrote a paper with my friend Rob uh, Gerdeep from PsyCognito on how AI can reinvent attack surface management. So that's a good thing. Collect a lot of data, train on the data sets, and then determine where an attack surface might have vulnerabilities. That all sounds great. But yeah. the, the Satan to the Santa of that is that, you know, a nation state, can train on uh, data sets 
to identify weaknesses in targeted infrastructure and can build these spectacular offensive weapons. So what we want is to reach some sort of a detente over time where the offense and defense are both fully automated and you got AI against AI. That'll be the steady state target. It's just how much turbulence do we have climbing to that altitude? That's the... Yeah. That's the fear because usually the offense is ahead of the defense. That's one of the great axioms of cyber. And um, if they are, then we could see some havoc from offensive AI from large institutions. We need big cooperative research activity to protect things like a nation like the United States. On that topic with kind of AI risk in general, what are maybe the conversations like that you're having with security executives today? I mean, what's kind of the maybe advice that you have or just approach to, to managing AI risk? Yeah. You know, my team at TAG has done, I think we counted 36 um, workshop sessions with Fortune 500 companies on this topic, on oh. us saying, what are you doing? What are the issues? What are the security problems? And we spent some good time with these organizations and we've come up with an understanding of where the guardrails are, because that's really the topic. Um of interest for most companies today. It's the leadership, CEO, board, CFO, technology leadership saying to the organization, hey, where are we using AI and what guardrails do we have in place to make sure that we don't have trouble? And if you ask them what trouble they're concerned with, it's kind of all over the map. Like the canonical view is, oh my gosh, we're a pharmaceutical and we're going to supply a bunch of hints to chat GPT about some new molecule. And then chat GPT is going to go, Oh, thank you for all these hints. Hey, here's the drug. And then, you know, then you lose your IP. Like, I think that that's kind of silly. Yeah. Um, But it's, I guess it's conceivable in some lawyer's mind that that could happen. So the, it's things like that. When you ask someone to actually mm. nail down the specific threat they're concerned with, it's hard to find. There are a few where I do think there's a threat. For example, in the entertainment industry, the threat is not a technical one. It's an HR one with their staff. <laughs> a lot of creative people don't like the idea of using artificial intelligence to create uh, competition for human sure. creativity. And, and you can really cause... Um, havoc amongst your creative staff if you're a little too aggressive with AI. My experience has been that AI is like a uh, prose calculator, that if you're doing something that is 80% is good enough and it's kind of mundane, like typical business writing, it's fantastic. And even though, you know, it can sort of create things in genre, like if I said, hey, write a limerick in the Joey, in your in your voice, it can kind of do that. It, it still strikes me as a mismatch. I think where it's spectacularly useful is in software-defining mundane business writing. Like if you're doing a business agenda, you're doing places to visit in New York City while you come to our headquarters for a week, things like right. that. Or, you know, even these dopey essays we had to write in high school, like what is the history of France from 1787 to 1843? Who the heck really needs to write that? If AI can write that and I can read it and learn from it, I think that's good enough. So so I think businesses right now are kind of confused. When you really ask them what the threats are, it's not a, a good, clean answer. 
but yeah. all of them are asking their security teams to put up guardrails. So are the results or have the results of those workshops that you mentioned, Ben, just you helping them understand like a clear understanding of what truly like plausible AR, AR risks they are experiencing, not just what's what's possible? Sometimes the best research and advisor is holding up a big mirror. <laughs> so yeah. tell, tell me what you're doing. And then in so explaining, yeah. things become rather clear. But for example, one of the first questions we ask businesses from a sign of an AI and security perspective would be, are you a type A or type B business? I'll tell you what we mean by that. Type A means, dude, we are in. AI is awesome. We're If you can do it, we're going to do it. We want to be ahead of our competition. Rock and roll, let's go do it. I mean, you know, that's how we run tag. <laughs> I can say, yeah. if you can do it with AI, do it. This is, it'd be like an accounting firm being nervous about using calculators. I mean, imagine you and I working in an accounting firm and do and saying, we don't want to use spreadsheets. We're going to use pencil and paper. We'd be fired in two seconds. That's not productive, prone right. to human error, blah, blah, blah. So type A companies are, we are all in. Type B companies are, I'm not so sure. Right. Um, we better call over to Zscaler and see if they've got a category for Gen AI and let's proxy yeah. it and block it. And we better tell our developers that if they're, you know, interacting with through APIs with some AI thing that they better make sure they're careful and we're going to pop and on and on and on. This whole, a lot of real tentative fear. Um, and when you ask people why, it's all about uncertainty. You say, what is it you're worried about? I'm not sure, but like this could happen or that could happen. It's like that. Yeah. So it's type A, type B. And I will tell you, based on my super scientific study, <laughs> not, <laughs> but, you know, it's about 30 something companies. It's 50-50. It's about half are all in and half are nervous. And you would think, oh, well, the... All in must be like the really cool high tech companies and the not in would be like the lawyers and, you know, like, a, a, a very, and I got to tell you, there's, I see, maybe I need to do another hundred, but Joey, I see no correlation. I, hmm. I it, at this point, it's probably the personalities of the yeah. executive teams that drive it. Cause it's, it's still a reflection of how fidgety, the leadership team is or are nervous about new things. I remember it with browsers and I remember it with mobile phones. Browsers in particular. Like I remember when I, I first saw Mosaic, uh, Mark Andreessen's tool, 93, yeah. I think it was. We all had it on our, you know, we were playing around with it. And then that Net, Nets, Netscape came after that. But I remember being in meetings where people would use terms like, evil and the end of business and all like around the browser and the internet it freaked people out like for a young person who might have been born around that time you had no idea but imagine a world before the world wide web and a world after like i lived through that and it yeah. freaked people the hell out now i think you see a little bit of that with ai now where people have this crazy belief that it's going to, you know, like eat up human beings and, you know, there will be this new species. I mean, I don't know, maybe a hundred years from now, 200 years from now, maybe these things do uh, establish enough intelligence that um, 
it could decide it's in the AI's interest to to get rid of us. I don't think that's likely, but you know, it's certainly a possibility. But right now, yeah. you know, twenty, I see only positive, uh, with a few exceptions. Killer robots scare me, and the offensive implications of cybersecurity uh, with AI could be an issue. Uh, but we just need to do the defense quickly. But for the most part, it's about every scenario that I think through. It's pretty exciting and makes businesses more productive and creates jobs that I think people are going to like. Yeah. One topic I'm, I'm curious to get your <clears throat> your perspective on is kind of juxtaposing maybe your time as CISO at AT&T mm. compared to operating as a CISO at you know an equivalently large organization like AT&T today? And maybe what would be the differences in your approach and maybe priorities? Obviously, that's that's a big topic and there's a lot in there. But if you could just speak no, to that, I'm, I'm fair curious. To... You know, not that long ago that I was still seating, sitting in the role at AT&T just a few years ago. Yeah. And I did it for a long time. I was there for 31 years and was in the top security job there for almost two decades. And since wow. then, I coach a lot of CISOs and a tag we work with CISOs. So I stay right. very, very, very close. I may not be out, you know, throwing passes, but I'm on the sideline with the headset on, you know, so, yeah. so I'm right smack in the middle of it. I'd say there's a couple of things that are different. The biggest thing of all is that CISOs used to be tech nerds. It was just a pure tech nerd thing. Yeah. So you hung around with networks and software and you knew hackers and you knew how to configure a firewall and you knew what a packet filter was. And, you know, you got a promotion and then you were kind of messing around with intrusion detection. And before you knew it, if you had the ability to make a presentation to customers or to executives, you got promoted. And it wasn't based on your technical skills, usually based on your ability to just explain all this black art that we were doing in cyber. We were yeah. calling it computer security or infosec. Eventually it became cyber. So it used to be a tech nerd job. Now it's an executive position. And that's a very big difference. Executives have the role of convincing others to their way of thinking. They need to provide leadership. They need to understand business and mission objectives. They need to have a holistic understanding of how the organization operates. They have to spend time communicating with and building relationships with their peers. Tech nerds did none of the above in the early days. It was, a, it was literally, I would stand out like a sore thumb in the early days when I became a uh, legitimate officer. I, it's, it's almost like, um, I think the closest I can think is legal. So I think hmm. lawyers usually, you don't get promoted from marketing into lead chief counsel. That's never going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> like your chief counsel came up through the legal department in most companies. And that, that's been sort of the way cyber has worked. It's just risk is such a broad concept that I think what's likely to happen in the next few years is that the CISO will remain a non-executive position, but some new thing will replace it as an executive position, like a risk executive, not a CRO, but a, a head of risk where pandemic, geopolitics, climate, cyber, all these, uh, even AI, um, sustainability, these are all risks that I think deserve the attention of a dedicated executive team. And I think cyber will become part of that. So I don't think 
just voila, all CISOs become executives. And that's where I think the SEC in the United States has gotten yeah. it all completely wrong. I don't think the SEC knows what the hell they're doing when it comes to the types of rules that they're pushing out on CISOs. I think they're trying hard to have an influence, but I think it's been a bull in a china closet. I, I, I wish them nothing but well. I know their intents are good, but I think the tactics have been abysmal. Could you elaborate on that? Maybe identify what you see their intentions as being and why the actions are like falling short of, of those intentions? Well, there's this view that a CISO should be reporting to government if they see something that seems amiss. Yeah. I don't know a CISO on the planet who wouldn't get fired if they went around legal and just reported something to the government directly. So what we've been coaching our teams and our customers based on the SEC stuff is to learn the whistleblower rules. So now you become, you need to go to your chief counsel and say, if the proverbial four-day period is passing and I'm nervous that you haven't reported, I'm going to go whistleblow. So that's what the SEC's done. They've caused CISOs to need to go learn how to whistleblow. Does that sound like a good idea when we're dealing with nation-state attacks that are intense? Is that what you really want your CISOs doing? Furthermore, the O in CISO, officer, is little O, not big O. Most of the CISOs that you run into, especially in vendors, are not officer positions. They're not at the table with the leadership team. Go look at the nice picture that sits on every website of like the Fortune 500, you know, that nice lean picture where they're standing looking confident in this staged photo. The CFO's there, the CEO's there, the president's there, the lead counsel, the head of marketing. Seven or eight people are there. HR is there. There's no CISO there. Go that, That's ridiculous to even suggest that the CISO is part of that inner counsel. So if the SEC wants to go poke at somebody, for God's sake, poke at the CEO. That's who has responsibility, not the CISO. Are you kidding me? It's almost, to me, almost like a, a lampooning of the. I, I, when I first started to see that they were going after um, like Tim Brown over at, at SolarWinds, I thought it was a joke. Are you kidding me? This is not reasonable. In fact, even in some vendor environments, there's not. I'm not speaking specifically about Tim now. Maybe more generally, but most of the CISOs who work for vendors are more, it's a sales position where they go to dinners, it's like right. a field position where they're trying to, you know, drum up sales uh, for, for the corporation as opposed to, you know, having a, um, a responsibility as a senior decision maker in the company. So, yeah, if the, if the SEC says, oh, well, that's the whole point, we're trying to change that. I'm saying the CISOs that are in place now are not the ones to do it with. There needs to be a risk executive doing that position, someone who's trained properly, who has the right communication skills. 90% of the CISOs I know have no communication skill and are not, um, are not well positioned to, to step into that, that role. But that's the, the, at a time when critical infrastructure is at risk of nation state attack, perhaps more intensely than anything I've ever seen. We have this inner fighting between government and industry that I think is a um, an unforced error. So that's yeah. my view. Uh, not everybody agrees, but that's my um, heartfelt view. I think the SEC has gotten it wrong. Where, where do you see it going? Like, do you think there's any 
appetite to modify this or like listen to feedback from the market no. at all, or is it just no? It's going it. to the SEC is going to continue pushing forward. There'll be some chaos in uh, twenty four. Here's what we recommend. Like, look, you asked about my time as a CISO, so I'll explain. When yeah. there's a time limit to anything you must do, then that dictates workflow. Automation and workflow is the way you do it. Like, Joey, if it's Thursday evening and your um, sibling is getting married on Saturday, then Thursday evening you're getting ready. Friday is the rehearsal dinner and with family. Then the big wedding on Saturday. Sunday is the big breakfast after the wedding. If there's an attack on Thursday, you got four days to deal with it. Let's say your sock manager emails you on Thursday saying, Joey, we got a big problem. We left some buckets open. Um, looks like a lot of customer data was stolen. This is very bad. Could be 20 folks who may have lost their identity. We've got a problem. And you're going to a rehearsal dinner. So I'm just saying, and let's say you work for a shoe company. You have eight people in your cybersecurity team. The yeah. SEC would say after four days, you've, you've committed a crime. Um, I don't know whether it'd be civil, criminal. I have no idea what they would do, but technically you'd be. So the way you deal with that as a CISO is workflow, meaning when the security operations center sees the problem, that gets integrated into a ticket that starts workflow. And if after four days, it's not been stopped, say, by counsel or whatever, it goes right to the SEC as an automated thing. And I've been saying, just automate the reporting so that if you're reporting that you're always under attack and these are always issues, then you're basically going to DDoS the SEC, but you're safe because you're reporting everything. So 100% of the companies that I coach, I've been telling them, start developing workflow combined with whistleblowing. And that's what the SEC has pushed us toward, has pushed yeah. us toward if I'm suspicious of something and I can't conclude after four days that it is or isn't a problem, but it very well could be. And then it turns out to be a problem later. And you say, I should have told you two months ago that I'm going to tell you two months ago. And I'm just going to report it. And I'll report all the time constantly. And then it protects you. Now, that's a bizarre, unintended consequence. It's a perverse response to a ruling. And I totally get that. But this is the collision course that we're on. I mean, if I was still sitting in a a role saying I was on a fortune seven company. I had a lot at stake. I would have automated the whole thing, everything workflow. And the SEC probably would have been hearing from me seven or eight times a week. Are there risks with over-disclosing in that case or? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. I mean, that's also the contention here that it's not just that you're letting the SEC know, you're letting the public know. And right. what do they think these are natural disasters that we're dealing with? Like I'm not, I'm not letting the skies know that I had a, a lightning bolt hit my tree. I'm letting an adversary know that I'm in the midst of dealing with something that some human being initiated at the other end. So right. this is not always a great idea. I don't think this has been thought through carefully. And if the idea is that we just need some sort of better process amongst businesses, my experience is you get that done better with honey than with vinegar. So I, I think that there are a lot of better ways that this could have been done. But it wasn't. It was done by saying, all right, we're going to go after you if you don't do it right. And 
I don't think that's the way to do it. Yeah. I was just about to ask that. What what would you have done? I imagine with the, the honey and vinegar analogy, maybe this isn't coming from the SEC, but bear with me if like if you were the head of cyber enforcement for the SEC or whatever that role is, what would be maybe the process or the the set of rules that you would have liked to have seen? It'd be a transitional period where I'd want the CEO to explain who's in charge of risk, how are you set up, and that risk executive, are they a direct report? Do they have responsibility? What are they doing? And start explaining through some disclosure how that's done. Now, I know that's part of it. You know, there, I, I get that that's certainly a piece of this thing. My my issue is more with the four-day thing and with the going after the CISOs. Those are the parts that I have a real issue with. But I said at the beginning that I, I think the intent is right. The intent is yeah. to try and make cybersecurity a, a higher priority. So I'm for that. But you can give a million ways that you can improve the, um, the posture of, um, I mean, look, let's face it. The real consequence here is with critical infrastructure providers. That's where you worry the most. If somebody knocks out a shoe manufacturer, that's not great. If my data is lost, that's not great. Even though at this point, Joey, you and I, there's no privacy anymore. Your data is already lost. But if a utility provider, a power company or something is knocked out, that has real consequence. So I think... Anybody with 10 minutes of thought into this problem realizes that there is a Pareto chart that emerges very quickly with a very steep first piece of the Pareto graph and a very long tail. And these are for public companies. And, I, and, I, and by the way, in government agencies, too, like um, the, it's not just, you know, a bank. How about the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Department of State or so on? These are places that have just as much consequence. All of the above should be working together to in, and should be incented. And that's what governments do. Governments drive incentives and provide leadership when it's done properly. And I have no issue with the Biden administration. I think for the most part, the Biden administration in cyber has been an all-star team. My goodness, when I look at the people who are doing it, they're so capable and friendly and helpful. They get an A-plus in terms of helping smaller businesses and you know, raising awareness and level-setting multi-factor authentication. I think Jen Easterly and others have just A-plus in that area. But where I think the government has fallen flat is in the real critical infrastructure area. I think we're more uh, vulnerable than we ever have been. And while a lot of our our government has done nice jobs with smaller businesses, going to forums, posing on social media, big smiles, everybody really driving awareness, I'm scared to death that, um, let's say, China is training AI on our attack surface and could use that to establish superiority. We would be um, flat-footed to that type of attack. So... So that's my view here. I think that the government, the U.S. federal government, independent of politics, has generally gotten it wrong when it comes to cybersecurity, and I think they're still getting it wrong. Got it. Okay. Well, Ed, I would love to transition into uh, what we call the rapid fire round. So basic premise is I ask a bunch of quick questions. It's how we wrap up each interview. Uh, and you share whatever comes top. The answer is 42 to everything you got. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. This was a pleasure, Chad. And yeah, let's wrap it up here. <laughs> um, 
But no, so thank you. And first question is, uh, what's your favorite book? You know, I knew you were going to say that. It's an old kind of book by Richard Feynman called Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. It's about, I think, what it is to have the joy of being a scientist. And I think everybody should. We've talked about uh, this quite a bit so far today. So there's probably a few ideas I could imagine you'll say. But if you could change one thing about the cyber industry, what would it be? Um, I think it's overfunded. I'd like to see mm-hmm. people recognize that we're protecting children's hospitals and critical infrastructure. And there's just too much money being thrown at vendors in the hopes of providing a very strong financial return. And I think it's warped the way we do cyber. I I would have liked to see that change. What's the best piece of career advice that you ever received? I think that communication skills are the way that you can get ahead in your career. Like it's not just the smartest person in the lab or the best developer, but it's usually the person who can communicate the best. So if you'd like to get ahead, then learn to speak, learn to present, learn to write, learn to uh, share ideas in a way that people can understand. So that that's always been good advice. And that's advice that I give people that I coach today. Yeah. Very good. And last one, if you could go back in time and get a drink with your 20-year-old self, uh, what advice would you give him? Uh, not too much. I, I'm not a big uh, believer in free will. I think things happen the way they happen. You know, I'd probably um, you know suggested that um, just stay on course. I, I think it, for me, I've been very lucky. I don't really have any regrets on anything that I've done. Um, you know, I think that it's been uh, interesting. I was born right around the right time to do cybersecurity. Like if you look at some of the people who've really been influential in this area, you know, Phil Venables and some others, Bruce Schneier, I think we're all pretty similar in age. You know, I, we came of age as this discipline was being developed. So, so we were lucky. We, yes. we were, I, I rode a wave and still am. Now AI is the second one. And that for me is a rebirth. I'm, I, I see AI as one of the most interesting and exciting areas. Um, in a 40 year career. So I'm looking forward to another 40 years. I don't know. My, my grandparents all lived into their hundreds and I'm 62. So maybe I'm making another 40 years. Who knows? Yeah. Plenty of time. Yeah. What are, what are maybe some uh, like AI resources? If, if there's people in the audience who want to learn more about it, even particularly with, within the context of cyber that you'd recommend and maybe point well, to come to our tag info sphere website. We have an AI practice. I point to a lot of, um, resources. There's a lot of bad resources. Like, you know, if you go on YouTube and you watch, um, you know, these really goofy videos where people are making these wild predictions about AI. I, of course, where I, I love Andrew Ng's uh, Stanford lectures. I've watched them all a couple of times. At some point, probably I teach at NYU. Um, I'm, I may at some point uh, do a, a security uh, course on AI. So there's two dimensions. There's using AI to do security, and then there's using security to protect your ML ops and the way you right. do AI. It'd probably be a two-part course. I've started sketching out some lectures on that, and if they come out, I'll try and convince the school to do it publicly. We did a Coursera through NYU that I've had almost 100,000 students take. It's been wow. very exciting. Coursera is an amazing reach. So, yeah. yeah, so I would say that um, if you go to our website, we point you to some nice resources. Well, this has been great, Ed. Thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to, to chat with me today. My pleasure.